Everybody, thank you for tuning in to Wild. This is the second episode of What I Am Learning Daily. In today's episode, I review a very interesting paper about atypical food allergies and IBS patients. So we see this a lot of times in practice as what foods should I avoid or what food should I eat in IBS? And so the default answer is the low FODMAP diet. In my training back in the day, we used to do a lot of elimination diets and even these expensive food intolerance tests. And we still do those these days. Um, however, this study actually applied some really interesting science and actually used cameras with food introduction to look at underlying changes that specific foods might address or change in the IBS patients. So listen in as I stumble through the latest literature on IBS. Everybody, this is Dr. Rindy. I am recording the next episode of Wild, What I Am Learning Daily. In this particular episode, I'm gonna be covering atypical food allergies and irritable bowel syndrome. I've read an interesting paper and I wanna share with you what I've learned from this. And I just wanna say that I am not a researcher by training. What I'm doing is pushing into sort of this awkward process of going through the literature and trying to apply evidence to my practice, which we always do, but I'm doing a formal process of learning where I'm pulling out some data and trying to apply it in clinical practice. And so as I fumble through this process of learning, I'm inviting you on my weekly learning process. So we're gonna go into the paper now as we speak. So the paper um, came out just recently in 2019, and this was from the 2019 Gastroenterology Volume 157, number one um, publication. And so the title is, Many Patients with Irritable Bowel Syndrome Have Atypical Food Allergies not associated with immunoglobulin E, IgE. So just to give you some background with irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of dietary approaches are thought of when approaching this disorder. So we've seen guidelines like the NICE guidelines out of the uh, United Kingdom, which has certain dietary restrictions and dietary modifications. And the most famous one is the low FODMAP diet and that is used with IBS patients. And IgE allergies are often looked at, um, but typically would not be common in IBS patients because those are more life-threatening food allergy reactions. And then we'll see people take out specific food groups like taking gluten out of the diet in IBS. Most patients with IBS will be screened for celiac disease, which is a gluten allergy and uh, essentially an autoimmune reaction against a protein um, related to the processing of gluten. And we're often left with questions, well, what other foods might be involved with um, triggering or contributing to IBS? And 
I've never seen a study actually look at the impact of food on IBS patients under a microscope. And this particular study does, and it's very exciting to read this because I've never seen anything like it. They used a technique called confocal laser, laser endomicroscopy, and it will be referred to in this presentation as CLE. It's a technique that permits detection in real time of what's going on in the intestinal tissues and cells. And they also can do biopsies and pull out immune markers and markers of inflammation in those tissues. So think of it like a very detailed endoscopy. So in this study, they selected 155 patients with IBS. And I'll talk about the inclusion and exclusion criteria in a second. And during these, this particular um, study, I'll show you that what they did is they did CLE on all these pa patients. They also did various markers of immune reactivity. And the study was completed by 108 IBS patients, 52 who had diarrhea-based IBS and there was a 39% dropout. I will say there's another part of this study that involves dietary interventions that are more long-term at a six month and 12 month dietary intervention. And that's another component of the study that we're not covering today. So a lot of dropout happened within that group because of the long-term compliance issues of maintaining a diet. And also some patients developed serious, serious diseases um, so there was a 39% dropout. So the overall completion of the study was 108 patients. They compared these patients to a group of people who did not have IBS, but they did have a condition called Barrett's esophagus. And that's why they were, they were also being monitored for the Barrett's esophagus with this technique called CLE, but they did not have IBS. So the patients were, were compared to that group. And just the, to be included in the IBS group, you had to have met Rome three criteria, which is the standard criteria for being um, diagnosed with IBS. And also these patients have to have that for at least a year. And they were also, um, sort of screened for people who believe that their food had an impact on their their disease so that they they had noticed that there was a correlation so people who were not allowed in the study were people with well-defined gastrointestinal diseases such as like ibd people who had positive ige reactions to foods or known allergies to some of the components used to study. And to further be included in this study, you had to have a normal colonoscopy, a normal upper endoscopy, um, normal inflammation markers in your stool, no antibodies to IgE foods that were common, a skin prick test for allergies had to be normal, you had to be negative for celiac disease, including genetic testing. And when they did baseline endoscopies, um, if you had significant 
interepithelial lymphocytes, meaning there was like immune reactivity in the baseline endoscopy, you were excluded from the study. And just know that these patients were not studied for these uh, food intolerances called IgG4. So what they did is they brought all these people into the study. They did a baseline before enter any intervention of endoscopies and biopsies, and they pulled um, markers at baseline. And then two weeks later, they did an introduction study where they would introduce one food at a time into the esophagus and down into this into the small intestine um, and the camera was set up so they would introduce wheat dairy yeast or soy and so as soon as they saw a reaction in one of these food groups based on certain appearances that they were looking for they would stop that particular introduction so if they started with wheat and there was no reaction, they would proceed to dairy and so on. So each time, um, if they saw a reaction and when they didn't see a reaction, they were pulling up biopsies um, and also markers of inflammation like eosinophils, T cells, occludin and collagen too, which are markers of intestinal permeability. And they were also looking at these interepithelial lymphocytes looking for immune reactions within these cells. And they gave someone a score of CLO positive when they fit certain criteria of what are called epithelial leaks, where actually the camera saw leaks of this fluorescent material into um, the what's called the interstitial space of the intestinal lining. And again, this is in the small intestine. This is the part of your intestine where you're right after you eat and the food goes through your stomach. It's the first part of where the food and um, digestive process starts after the food has left your stomach. And they were looking for um, markers um, of certain uh, breaks in the epithelial. They were also looking to see if there was any fluorescent signals between the cells called enterocytes, which would mean that there was leakage um, upon introduction of these foods. Then further, they looked at changes in the villi, which are the intestinal cell. Um, they're essentially uh, part of the small intestinal cells that actually um, is most responsible for absorption of nutrients. And so if there was widening or changes um, in the villi upon introduction of the food, uh, based on certain criteria, these patients were given a positive. Um, so they were, they were looking for like macroscopic disruption of the absorption surface of the intestinal lining. Um, and then also leakage into space in the intestinal lining. They also wanted to measure immune reactions in these particular patients. And so they measured something called TNF-alpha, IL-4, IL-5, eosinophil cationic protein, and a couple other markers. Um, 
one called alpha tryptase, which measures histamine reactions. Uh, these were all pulled up from the fluid. Again, they were comparing this to people who, um, in their analysis, that did not have reactions upon these introduction foods and these healthy controls made up of Barrett's esophagus patients without IBS. So the outcome, overall 108 IBS patients with 52 with diarrhea, IBS, um, and the rest with mixed and constipation um, finished the study. And 76 of them were CLL positive, meaning they had a reaction to either wheat, dairy, soy, or yeast that caused these changes that met these criteria, which is really amazing to me that they saw this so clearly. And these are IBS patients that reacted to one of these four groups. And they did send out uh, like an outpatient test um, that some people, six patients had these were CL positive to a mixture of pepsin, trypsin, digested gliadin, which is a gluten reaction. And it was tested outside the clinic. So that was just noted. It's a little confusing to me why they did that, but um, just maybe to look at gluten reactions. So again, with the outcomes, there was increased epithelial leaks that were significantly higher in the CLA positive groups versus the CLE negative groups. So intestinal uh, leakage um, into intraepithelial uh, inter spaces and also Claudin 2, which is a marker of um, intestinal permeability, was upregulated after the challenge of these foods in the CLA positives. Um, and it was noted that before the challenges, the levels of Claudin were similar in the CLE uh, positive patients and healthy controls. So they saw that after they did these, this introduction, the Claudin-2 levels went up. In contrast, the Cludin levels was reduced in CLE positive versus healthy controls. And a Cludin is a marker of how tightly bound the intestinal cells are um, to each other. So when a Cludin um, is reduced, we see uh, more leakiness. Um, so also the other things that I want to point out that there was um, there was more um, eosinophils um, secreted eosinophil cationic protein and tryptase post-challenge in the CLA positive groups versus healthy controls, but not different than the CLE patients that the CLE negative patients. So the thinking is, is that the CLE negative patients, um, even though they did not have uh, a reaction to these four foods that was significant to be called CLE positive, um, there is thinking that there might be some um, low-grade uh, histamine or IgE reaction in all these IBS patients. And we just didn't, the, the study didn't select the right food group to 
to challenge a reaction for the CLE negative patients. See if I can show this. Um, so I just want to show this video here if I can get this. In fact, I don't think this is going to show up on your screen. So there is a, a video available that you can actually see the leakiness of the fluorescent into the interstitial space um, that you can pull from the actual study. It's kind of cool. Um, perhaps it showed up on this video, but there's um, an obvious visual appearance in the people who are having this reaction of um, the intestinal leakage in basically intestinal permeability. So my conclusion is that atypical food intolerance can disrupt this intestinal lining and cause immune activation in IBS patients. And yes, the, um, it can cause intestinal permeability and there's video to prove it and a, a really nice elegant study here um, using this CLE. Um, it showed in the study that the four groups that are pretty common to cause these reactions are wheat, dairy, yeast, and soy, but likely other foods can possibly trigger it. Um, there's a wide for assortment of foods in IBS. So what this study did for me is reinvigorate the benefits of food challenge and food elimination style interventions in IBS patients. I still feel like dysbiosis is part of the driver of what's going on here. And so we have um, two scenarios where you have to look at food reactions and also microbe stimulation. And so that I think this gives us a lot to wrap our head around with IBS patients and we can really help a lot of them. Um, it will be interesting to see if, you know, by calming down the inflammation in these patients that we can do food reintroduction. And that's what I like to move towards. Um, I will point out one interesting thing that they found in this study that I think has a lot of significance that, that showed that there was a high correlation of um, increased prevalence of atopic disorders, especially related to inhaled allergies in the patients who were CLE positive. So um, that's a good screening question in people who are most likely to respond to these interventions is just to see if they have atopic allergies to inhaled like pollens and dust and those types of triggers. If they've been diagnosed with that, there's a chance that, and they have IBS, there's a chance that they'll be better respond to something like this kind of challenge protocol. So that's my review. Um, thank you for tuning into Wild, what I'm learning daily. And uh, hopefully as we go here, these will get even better and better. But thank you for being part of this learning process. I'm going to sign off for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the latest edition of Wild, which is part of my One Thing podcast series, where I get a chance to contribute to the content and you get to be a part of my learning process. 
please feel free to leave me some comments as to how I'm doing with this process and what you would like to learn about. Also, consider sponsoring my podcast by going to the Anchor homepage, anchor.fm backslash Adam hyphen Rindy, R-I-N-D-E. These podcasts are a passion of mine. Um, I also would like to see if I could put more time and resources towards it and sponsorship will help me do that. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.